Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka. And I'm your co-host, Aaron. Bad Axe is brought to you by the Podmoth Media Network. Check out Podmoth for more great podcasts. As always, you can support the show and get a year worth of bingeable content over at patreon.com backslash Pod. There's a link in our show notes and memberships start at just $1. You can also support the show for free by leaving us a positive review and telling a friend about us. Now, on to today's case. This episode is going to be a kind of two-for-one situation because I have a bonus-related case that comes up in our case that I'm going to tell you about after our main case. We technically have three cases. Three cases and one. But one of them is like a blip, so I'm not counting that one. So, two full cases and a blip. Two for the price of one. That's a bargain. I know, although that sounds terrible, so maybe we won't say that. What happens in this crime is really chilling, and I think that a lot of people have a fear similar to what's going to happen, and I think that's what makes this case really scary. And so I decided to talk about it because I thought, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have experienced worries about this situation and then told themselves, oh, that never happens, calm down. But apparently it does happen, and it happens more than you might think. And so we are going to be talking about it today, and we're going to be remembering someone who tragically lost their life. So today we are going to New York City in December 2012. New York City is the most populous city in the United States with about 8.8 million residents. And part of the reason why the city is so populous is that it was an entry point for immigrants arriving to the U.S. at Ellis Island, which is why the Statue of Liberty is there. That's right. We have a lot of international listeners, so I don't know if everyone knows that. And fun fact, this is slightly related. Did you know that Galveston Island, that is right here by Houston, used to be the Ellis Island of the South prior to the 1900 storm? That's right. Yeah, so a lot of immigrants would come through this way, especially, I think, immigrants from more southern places. But in the 1900 hurricane, it just pretty much devastated the entire island, and they had to move it. So, not the island, obviously. (laughs) If they could do that, there would be a lot more things happening with land. But, no, they had to move the immigration point because people couldn't go there anymore. I mean, they could eventually, but you know what I mean. I know what you mean. They couldn't be processed. So, back to New York. The city has an iconic skyline dominated by skyscrapers and high-rise buildings. With that many people, you need a lot of stacking, right? And because the city is so densely populated, its architecture depends on tall, multi-story structures. Back in December 2012, 46-year-old Sunando Sin was living in a very active lifestyle in New York City. He lived in a small apartment with roommates as he built a life for himself in the United States. He'd actually rented a room from somebody else who already had a home unit there in Queens. And so that is how he, he supported himself. Sedondo immigrated to the U.S. from Calcutta, India, and settled in Queens. He was studying for his Ph.D. in economics at New York University, 
And for work, he ran a printing shop near Columbia University. And he also, I believe, did some graphic design as part of his, like, income portfolio. Nice. In addition, Sunanda was also a human rights activist who helped fellow Hindis who were being oppressed in Bangladesh. And he just really, really wanted to help people. And so he just gave of his time when he really already was pretty much stretched thin with school and work. Sonando clearly had a bright future, but since I'm telling him you about him, you're probably figuring out that it's not going to last for as long as it should have. Yeah. According to his co-workers, Sonando was a practicing Hindu, which is going to become relevant later, and so I wanted to tell you about. As part of his busy lifestyle, he was on the go on the evening of December 27th, 2012. At around 8 o'clock p.m. that day, Sinando was waiting on the subway platform for the number 7 train in Queens. The number 7 train takes passengers from Queens into Manhattan on the city's subway system. As he stood there, a woman walked up behind him. She was muttering to herself and acting a bit funny. And people did say that they had seen her talking to herself in the train platform that day, but that's kind of a common sight in a busy city like New York. I mean, here in Houston, we're the fourth largest city, and we have that on a lot of our street corners. So, I mean, it's something you just kind of get used to when you're in the big city that it's going to happen. People are going to talk to themselves. Yep. There are people also who are struggling with some conditions that, you know, you just kind of have to respect their privacy and not bother them. And so people were kind of doing that. Like, they understood she was muttering, but nobody really approached her or tried to do anything about it. Because, I mean, what are you going to do, really? Yeah. Unfortunately, this lady had some serious issues going on inside her mind that day. And as the train sped toward the platform making its approach, she was watching. And when the train reached the spot where Sinando waited, the woman reached out and pushed his back, flinging him onto the tracks. Oh, my God. The train crushed Sinando underneath it, killing him. Dude. Yeah. So this lady who he, he she did not he did not know her. She just walked up and pushed him in front of the train what out of nowhere. The fuck. Yes, and it's important to note that they had not interacted at all. Later on, the medical examiner determined that he had died from multiple blunt force traumas from the train and authorities described his remains as mangled. Yeah, I'm not no doubt. Yeah. After pushing him, the muttering woman ran away, escaping into the crowds. A witness called 911, and police immediately started investigating Sunando's death as a murder. But first, they'd have to find their suspect. Meanwhile, subway commuters began to fear for their lives, horrified that someone could be pushed to their death from a subway platform. And I think anyone who's ever waited for any kind of train or bus, or, like, transit connection at the airport, has been worried about getting run over. Oh, yeah. I worry about that mm -hmm. a lot. But we tell ourselves that won't happen because there's safety precautions. Well, turns out it very much can happen. And horrifically, Sunando Sin was not the only person who died on the subway tracks during December 2012. Really? Yes, it was turning out to be a deadly month for train commuters, and that is the other case I'm going to tell you about at the end today. So, at this point, people were starting to freak out because, I mean, we have less than one month. Two people have died. 
And unlike other major cities, there are no rails along the tracks for the subway system. And so people regularly fall or jump in front of trains in just a surprising amount. Yeah. Yeah, like, it happens more than you would think. Like, in 2012 in particular, a total of 54 people died on the subway tracks, which seems like kind of a lot. That is a lot. Yeah, so with people getting pushed now, commuters were starting to freak out because a lot of people use this subway system and they're like, okay, are we going to do something about this? Because the first person who did did a pushing had been apprehended. Already. So they knew it wasn't like the same person or anything. So we have two separate people who have pushed someone in one month. That sucks. Yeah, it does. It really sucks. And authorities at this point had to find this killer. So a police sketch artist made a composite sketch of the woman witnesses saw push Sonando off the subway platform. And authorities distributed the photo to the media in the hopes they could track her down. Also, the NYPD also released surveillance footage from the subway station in the hopes that someone would recognize her. And this video shows the woman running away after she pushed him. Fortunately, this move paid off because two days after the murder, authorities got a call from someone who was walking on the New York sidewalk and spotted someone that they thought looked just like the woman in the video. Nice. And this person basically told police where they could find this person. And the dispatcher sent out officers, and they managed to track her down. And they identified this woman who looked like the person in the video as 31-year-old Erica Menendez. Officers arrested Menendez on Saturday, December 29, 2012. During questioning, she actually admitted to pushing Sonando onto the tracks pretty much immediately. And her motive... You're probably wondering. I am wondering. Okay, well, prepare yourself because it's really bad. Menendez told police that the reason why she killed him is that she hated Muslims and Hindus. Oh. Because of 9-11, she blamed her hatred of both Muslims and Hindus for some reason on 9-11 and the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. What? Yeah. And remember, first of all, you shouldn't hate people. And, right. And this yeah. is, and like, obviously, like, I, there was a huge problem of racism after 9-11, even though most Muslims, pretty much all Muslims are not connected to any of this. That's and right. it's not fair for them to be, like, judged for things like this. It's terrible. But also, this was 2012. Like, also, there's an even more horrifying or disgusting part of that that I'm going to tell you about in a moment. So prepare yourselves to be even more like WTF. Yeah. Also, Hindus have no, no connection to this at all. So I don't even know how that factors into it at all. So according to CBS News, she actually said in quote, quote, I pushed a Muslim off the train tracks because I hate Hindus and Muslims ever since 2001. When they put down the tent twin towers, I've been beating them up, unquote. What? Yeah, so this is not the first time, according to her, that she's attacked someone based on their religious belief. And ironically, she had thought that he was um, someone who is a Muslim just based on the fact that he was brown. And he's not. But then she's, like, also hating Hindus, so I guess she would have hated him anyway. But at this point, the police are like, okay, so this is a hate crime. And prosecutors charged her with murder as a hate crime. Yeah, I'm glad they should. However, there's, like... A second shoe that drops because there's a twist that 
in my opinion, makes it more awful because you would think that the reason why she's upset about 9-11 would be the same reason that most people are upset about 9-11. And that's because there was a horrific loss of lives. There was trauma inflicted upon the city. People lost loved ones. Survivors were left with all kinds of illnesses and survivor's guilt and injuries and long-time issues. Like, it's just devastating. I mean, everyone was devastated, but especially the people who were affected directly. Yeah. So you're thinking maybe she was affected directly. That would kind of explain some of this. Maybe she knows someone, right? Right. No. In 2013, Menendez did an interview with the New York Post to clarify her comments, and she wanted to make sure that everyone understood that she wasn't upset about the loss of lives or the trauma inflicted upon the city. She was actually upset because she liked the buildings. Wait, 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 wait. She's upset about the buildings? Specifically, the the Twin Towers, yeah. She was upset enough about the buildings being gone that she needed to kill this poor man. And be a racist, yeah. Like wow. people not even not even affiliated, not not any, even any terrorists, just average people, or in this case, above average, amazing people going about their day, living their lives. She needed to target them for crimes because she missed the building specifically. What? I know. I mean, I, I I know I've said it like three times. I just, I, like, I'm flabbergasted by this case. Yeah, it does not make sense. Like, none of it makes sense. Like, it doesn't make sense that you would see someone and then racially profile them and then hate crime murder them. I realize that she's having mental health struggles. That is part of it. But at the same time, I feel like the buildings thing, like... Yeah, that that part makes no sense. That, that's it's just so random. All of the parts of this together just just come together to make me have a lot of questions and sadness and worry. Yeah, <laughs> because there's other people that have feelings like this that are running around, possibly murdering just anyone. Yeah, it could be you. It could be someone you love. Like, yeah, we don't know. Well, sure. I mean, we're all around. You know, dangerous things, you know, trains and subways and cars and buses. Yeah, like you said. for realsies. I mean, I've, I've had incidents where I almost walked into a bus because I wasn't paying attention. Uh-huh. I can't. And, you know, obviously we all stand next to sidewalks and, you know, them buses, they don't give a shit. Like they in Houston, we have a lot of bus bus situations. We don't have as much subway. Um, but, you know, like I can't imagine if somebody wanted to push me in front of a bus, they could yeah. very easily kill me, you know, and then they just... We do have that. I mean, we do have our light rail train, and it, we, we do it have does that. hit cars a lot. But usually the cars are doing the wrong thing. Yeah, but that's right. Our our metro drivers do have kind of a reputation for yeah. not giving any Fs. I don't think they are treated well, I, I think is the problem, but because yeah. they do have some, some moments where they... <laughs> <laughs> like run over people or cars or just like pass bus stops they're supposed to stop at because they're like nope <laughs> not today not for you <laughs> it's true so i don't know it's just it's just crazy anyway that is what she says now we're gonna back up because the interview she did was in 2013 and we're gonna talk about that because there are some like problems with this case in that she does have mental health issues but at the same time the things that she says about her reasons are she repeats them quite a few times to let you know how she's feeling. After her admissions, police discovered that they had actually interacted with her before. Back in 2003, which is about nine years before the murder, Menendez was arrested twice for assaulting someone. One of the people she attacked was her partner, 
who was at the time a 28-year-old man, and they were living together. So this was a domestic violence situation, which is terrible and also pretty common. Although I feel like a lot of times when we hear about it in true crime, it's usually the man on the woman. But as we know, women do put violence on men. In this case, she was attacking her boyfriend. However, the second person was actually unknown to her. And this one is crazy, so prepare yourselves. As most people who have listening to the podcast for a while know, I have a mental health condition. And so we don't judge people with mental health conditions here. She does have a mental health condition and that is influencing some of these decisions. But at the same time, I still maintain that what's happening is scary. In the second incident, she attacked a retired New York firefighter who was a battalion chief named Daniel Conlisk. And he was just taking out his trash when the incident occurred. Damn. And literally, he walked from his house to the trash can to dump his trash in it. And she just came out of nowhere and attacked him. According to Daniel, Menendez took a boxer stance and then struck him. And she also clawed at his face. And during this attack, she accused him of having sex with her mother. And he did not know her mother. Yeah. He wasn't like having any kind of relationship. Not that that would justify it, obviously. But they're like just strangers. Yeah, they're just strangers. And she's just like, you're having sex with my mother and just starts attacking him. And he was literally covered in blood because she was scratching on clawing at his face as she was attacking him. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so obviously he called the police and they were able to arrest her. But that is just outrageous that this even happened. And in addition to these assault arrests, Menendez was also arrested in 2003 for having cocaine, which might have been uh, participating as a, you know, a supporting character in some of these incidences. Yeah. Uh, But she, again, does have mental health problems as well. And these are not, I should also note that as we have previously stated on the show, just in case you're a new listener, people who have mental health conditions are far more likely to be victims of crimes than perpetrators. It just so happens that this person has really violent tendencies that are playing a role in her decision-making. Yep. Now, these are not the only incidences also. Her family had called authorities five times between 2005 and 2012 to complain that Menendez wouldn't take her medication. And she actually threw a radio at officers during one of those calls. Like, she just threw it, trying to peg the officers. Wow. Yeah. And so, it's clear, it's not listed what kind of medication that she was taking, because that's her personal medical records. But it is clear that she had violent tendencies. And over the years, Menendez actually underwent treatment at two different New York City hospitals for psychiatric issues. And doctors had prescribed her medication to help her deal with her symptoms. However, she didn't like taking the medication because it made her feel shaky, which makes sense because a lot of pharmaceuticals that they give you for mental health conditions are terrible. Let's just be honest. It's very hard to find one that's good for you. And they cause all kinds of side effects. And sometimes, like, from your perspective, as I mean, I as a person who've been on medication, sometimes it seems like you're better without it. Because there's just new things. It's like whack-a-mole. Like, every time you get one to go down, there's another one up somewhere. You've seen the side effects for commercials. Yeah. There's always, like, infinity things. It's like, what am I even trying to do here? Yeah, that's... (laughs) Like, I'm just making the situation worse. Exactly. That's legit. Yeah, so depending on what's happening with you with side effects, it might be feeling like you are doing worse. Even though, and, like, Aaron and I have both learned this, 
in life, if you persist and you work with your doctor, you can find a medication that is good. That's right. So don't give up, people. Don't just do what she did and not take them because that's a terrible idea. That's right. Also, she did like to self-medicate with weed that she felt like helped her relax. And I think that it was just hard for her to consistently use that. Based on her past, though, we know that she had these violent tendencies, and they clearly came up whenever she encountered Sunando that day. Ironically, though, New York State has a law that's supposed to prevent crimes like this, and it was specifically directed at mentally ill people who were struggling with taking their medications and came into play after another person was pushed in front of a train. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, which is the third case. This is the blip case. Because I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. But this law is called Kendra's Law. And it's named after a woman named Kendra Webdale, who was a journalist in Buffalo, New York. And Kendra was just 32 years old when she was waiting for the train one day. And a mentally ill man pushed her in front of that train in Manhattan. And that occurred in January 1999. And she passed away from her injuries, which was just a tragedy. Because, again, she was only 32 years old. And... After her death, there was a law brought up to try to address people who were having trouble sticking with their mental health treatment and were also listed as being a danger to themselves or others because of violent tendencies. And the person who wrote the law asked her family if they could include her name on it to kind of attach a, you know, a person to it and to let people know what kind of incidences can occur. And they ended up agreeing to do that. And the goal of the law is that if you have someone who isn't following their mental health treatment, who has these tendencies, the court can actually order mental health treatment. And this could be outpatient treatment or hospitalization, depending on what's best for the patient. Although I will note here that some mental health advocates disagree with the law and think that it is bad because they feel like people are being pressured to take medicine when they don't want to. However, it's kind of unclear what this law could have done to help this situation and prevent Mendendez from post, from pushing Sonando off of that platform because she was actually already receiving outpatient treatment from mental health professionals who were working with Elmhurst Hospital. And these mental health professionals were delivering her medication weekly and checking on her progress. The problem is, is that she didn't really have a stable home. And so she would stay with certain people, like for instance, she often stayed with her mom But whenever the outpatient people would go to check on her, a lot of times she just wouldn't be there. And sometimes they would even tell tell her, like her family was like not at all trying to hide what was going on. They were trying to get help. Her family would straight up tell the workers, she's not taking her medicine. We haven't even seen her in X number of days. Wow. But there's not a lot they can do. I mean, they're just supposed to be monitoring her. So it's not like they can just go like track her down. Like she doesn't have a GPS on her. So yeah. it's, there's not a lot you can do at that point. And I think that might be one issue with, with the law, I guess. I don't even know how you would fix it because it's important that we respect people's privacy. So, I mean, we definitely don't want to be like, tracking people or something against their will. But at the same time, there probably should be some way to help people get some sort of stability that enables them to be checked on. Yeah. And maybe if she really hates her medication that much, they should try a different medication. But there's not a lot, again, that they could do to fix this problem in the scenario that was playing out. At Menendez's arraignment, Judge Gia Morris remanded her to jail without bail for the time being. Additionally, Judge Morris ordered that Menendez undergo a psychiatric evaluation to make sure she was fit to stand trial. 
And this is partially because she'd had documented mental health issues in the past. During the arraignment, Menendez actually laughed hysterically. Wow. And also spoke unclearly to the judge. And at one point, the laughing got so bad that Judge Morris actually had to ask the defense attorney to make her stop laughing during the procedure. Dang. Yeah. Meanwhile, Sinando sends family and friends mourned him at a traditional Hindi funeral, which the news media for some reason photographed. Really? Yes. Now, part of the reason for this is that we will get to later is that one of the the newspapers, I guess it's still called a newspaper in New York, is a tabloid, the New York Post. And they were like all in this. Yeah. They were very entrenched in these train deaths. And so that might be why, because that's who published a lot of the pictures. But to be fair, I saw them in other publications as well. And you can actually see his coffin. You can't see the body technically because they have covered it with a white sheet and some flowers, which I don't really think makes it okay, I guess. It's weird to me that they went to his funeral and photographed it. Is. it. I mean, I get it if it's someone who's, you know, a politician or something, you know. This was weird. Yeah, it's It was weird, weird for me. I was, like, reading, I was like, is that his coffin? Surely not. And then it was. It was his actual funeral, and they were doing, like, a ritual in the, one of the pictures. And I was like, are you allowed to photograph people doing their religious ritual? For the funeral, right? That seems weird. I mean, even if you are allowed to, like, it's just, there's Mm -hmm. something wrong with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's creepy. But if you would like to see it, it is available online. And also, I will tell you that, as you will see later, this is not the most messed up picture that the media is going to publish in this episode. Oh, wow. So prepare yourselves. After the funeral, Sonando's body was cremated, which is part of his tradition. And also, his friends, a lot of them did speak to the media about how important he was to them and that they were just, like, flabbergasted how this could happen. And obviously, some of them had a fear of the subway now because, I mean, how can this even happen? Yeah. So, for about two and a half years, Menendez awaited trial on Rikers Island since she'd been remanded to jail. However, the court did declare her competent to stand trial. They actually declared her competent twice. In 2013, she actually did a prison interview with the New York Post, which is a tabloid paper, as I said before. And this was the interview that I briefly referenced earlier. She told the reporter in that interview that Sanando tried to save himself at the very end by shaking her off. But it's important to note that witnesses say that he didn't have time to defend himself. So she may just be saying what she felt like was happening. But it is possible that she felt him try to, like, stop himself from falling. Which is what she says. Which is just tragic. Yeah, for real. Because people have been kind of comforting themselves that maybe this happened so fast he didn't know it was happening. So if he did have time to, like, react, that's even more horrifying. Yeah, it is. During the interview, Menendez tried to explain away her actions by saying she was angry and going through some stuff. She told the New York Post, quote, My mind was just racing that day. I was mad. I was just angry. I was homeless. I was hungry. I was fighting with my boyfriend. He came running up the stairs and I just got up and pushed him, unquote. She also reiterated the stuff about 9-11 and this is when she disclosed that she missed the buildings. In May 2015, which is quite a bit of time, about two and a half years after the murder, Menendez went in front of Queen's Supreme Court Justice Gregory Lasik and pleaded guilty to manslaughter. However, she said in court that she didn't remember why she pushed him. So even though she'd given other statements 
about hatred and about being angry. She that now claims that she doesn't know what happened. Judge Lasik confronted her with her own statements after the murder, pointing out that she told officers that she did it because she hated Muslims and Hindus, and he asked her if she remembered telling them that, but she denied it. Lasik continued and pointed out that Menendez followed Sanando down to the platform and chose him intentionally, which seemed to support her earlier admission to targeting him based on his race and her hatred for other religions. Lasik also pointed out that commuters experienced a lot of fear after the cruel crime because they also feared being pushed in front of a train. And at sentencing, Judge Lasik gave Menendez 24 years in prison for killing Sunando. And she'd already spent like two and a half years in jail waiting trial. Yeah. So she'll be in jail for pretty long time. I actually am not sure if I agree with the manslaughter thing. I think they gave her that so they could just get the case pled out. Yeah. But it's it, just sad. It It's definitely very sad. I mean, 24 years is a good long time. But I mean, for a hate crime, that's still... Mm-hmm. It, yeah, because it know. took off the hate crime thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess like from a charging perspective, they took off the hate crime, but it's still a hate crime. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, it, that it was a racially motivated hate crime. I mean, like, like I say, mm-hmm. I mean that's and that's tragic. Yeah, it's just it's just terrible. So that is the story of Sunando Sen and how he was tragically pushed in front of this train, which is just horrifying. And it just makes me really sad that he had so many things that he was doing. Like, he was putting so much good in the world, and then he is taken out of it for no reason whatsoever. Yeah. It's, it's just wild. It's terrible. So, this is, the episode is not over. There's a whole other case. So, don't leave. Because I'm going to also tell you about the other case I mentioned earlier. The one that happened earlier in December 2012. Oh, hi. If you're looking for another spooky and funny podcast to add to your rotation, check out Anything Bones, now part of the Podmoth Network. Hey, Boneheads, I'm Sophie Schwartz. And I'm Caitlin Hart. And we're the hosts of Anything Bones, the podcast where we talk about bones and bone-related topics. Soph, what are bone-related topics? Thank you for asking, Caitlin. This can be anything from mausoleums to murderers, famous skeletons to cadaver dogs. Bone churches, mummies, serial killers. You'll hear about them all. And sometimes we have guests stop by and tell us their favorite bony tales. Check out Anything Bones on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever your little heart desires. We release new episodes every Saturday. Bone Voyage. So this case took place on December 3rd, 2012. And 58-year-old Kisuk Han was on the subway platform at 49th Street in Manhattan. It was noon, but Han was already drunk. And when I say he was on the platform, I should say he was at the turnstile. As he entered the turnstile, Han collided with 30-year-old Naeem Davis. And according to Davis... Han pretty much immediately started yelling at him and was shouting curse words and threatening to kill him. Now, a witness later said that they did hear Han threaten Davis to kill him. Davis also claims that Han grabbed his shoulder and he says he tried to ignore the older man walking down onto the platform to catch his train, but Han followed. And Davis says that Han approached him from behind and it frightened him. 
And he says that he thought that Han was immensely ill and threatened him. And he explained later on that he wasn't trying to, like, denigrate people who, again, have a mental illness, but that he thought that because he was yelling these things at him, threatening to kill him and, like, touching on him, he thought that he was dangerous at that point. Yeah, and I can understand that. If somebody laid hands on me, I'd, I'd feel threatened. And as Han shouted at him, Davis says that he told him to go to the other end of the platform and leave him alone, but unfortunately that didn't happen. During this altercation, Davis pushed against Han's chest, trying to get away from him. And this thrust him onto the tracks. Oh, no. Yeah. Now, at the time that Davis pushed Han, there actually wasn't a train. It was on the way, but it wasn't there yet. So there were actually, like, there was a minute or so when he had a chance to get up off the track. However, he was too drunk to pull himself up. And no one who was witnessing this happen stepped forward to help him. So about a minute later, as he's standing there on the tracks, not really able to be coordinated enough to get off, the Q train approached the platform. And a New York Post photographer was present at the scene. Oh, my God. And that photographer took photos as the train came toward Han. And later... The Post controversially published these photos on the cover of the paper with the headline, Doomed. Holy shit. Yeah, and you can look at these photos online if you would like to do that. I would not like that personally, but if Yeah, I mean, you can't see the actual, like, it's not the part where the train hits him, but at the same time, it's horrific because you see a man who's realizing that a train is, like, a few feet from him and is about to hit him. And that's horrifying. Yeah, it is. And also, and this is something that makes it even worse, his family is alive and able to look at things. And so, unfortunately, his family was exposed to this photograph because it was everywhere. And that was something that was incredibly traumatic for them because nobody wants to see that. Yeah. I mean, yes, he, you know, had time to escape, but, like, that doesn't mean that it's okay for you to put these photos. Yeah, exactly. It's just disgusting. Yeah, totally. So, I feel like that's worse than the coffin photo that I was telling you about earlier. Yeah. This was the other one. <laughs> I think you're right. That's yeah. definitely terrible. It's just, it's bad. And later on, the photographer would be called out for this, and he claims that he wasn't photographing the incident. He was trying to use the flash to alert the conductor. Huh. Yeah, which... I don't know if that's true. It's hard to know because there were commuters flagging the train and shouting. This was happening all along the platform. Like, nobody tried to help him get out. But when the train started coming, they did start, like, yelling and, like, screaming and gesticulating, trying to get the conductor to stop the train. But unfortunately, the conductor did not realize there was a problem in time to stop the train. And so it is possible that, and as a reaction, that the photographer started snapping the photos. But the fact that they are appear to be in frame like it looks like someone was looking through the viewfinder like and framing this photo not that it was just like haphazardly snapped right so we'll never know the truth for sure sadly as you can probably imagine since i'm telling you this the train struck and killed han as he struggled on the tracks after the incident davis collected his personal items which included a jacket coffee and headphones and he went about his work day Now, later on, the prosecution would point out that this shows that he was cold-hearted. But Davis says that he just freaked out, that he was in a panic, essentially. Like, this wasn't something he planned at all. Like, he literally was just going to the train, was 
in his mind, assaulted by someone. And then as he's, like, trying to get the guy away from him, the guy is hit by a train. So he says as, like, just an impulse, he left. And just tried to just forget about what happened. Police were able to quickly apprehend them, though. And Davis, as it turns out, is homeless. Or he was homeless at the time. He came to New York City as a refugee from Sierra Leone, which at the time that he came here was in the midst of a civil war. And I just want to note that I think that that also plays a role in how he reacted to some of this stuff because he is literally a war survivor and then he's being approached by someone who's threatening him and like touching on him. And I think it makes sense that he would want to push this person away from him. I also think that it makes sense that he would have the ability to completely shut down when he experiences a trauma because he literally went through a war yeah as a child that makes sense so he is was a refugee but he had become an american citizen before this incident happened so he'd been in the u.s for a while and he earned a small amount of money working odd jobs but unfortunately he wasn't able to afford a stable home because of the fact that he just wasn't earning enough which is very sad yeah he told officers that he killed Kisa Khan in self-defense, and he never changed the story. But the prosecutor's office absolutely refused to believe him and instead concluded that he had killed Han on purpose. They charged Davis with murder as well as first-degree manslaughter, second-degree manslaughter, and criminally negligent homicide. They were like, everything. Damn. And he was remanded to jail, and his trial actually took four and a half years to happen. Holy shit. Yeah. So up until June 2017, from December 2012 to June 2017, Davis sat in prison, or in jail, I should say, awaiting trial, maintaining his innocence. The trial lasted a total of three weeks, and the prosecution and defense called a total of 30 witnesses. The prosecution argued that Davis should have known that Han was drunk and not mentally ill, and they said that this was because he smelled heavily of alcohol, and they pointed out that when he was questioned in his interrogation, Davis said that Han was staggering as he was, like, approaching him and, like, you know, yelling at him. And so they were like, you should have known he was drunk and not mentally ill. I don't think that's a good argument, though, because you can be both. Like, mentally ill people get drunk all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so, obviously, we know that mentally ill people are not inherently dangerous or scary. But in this situation, it could be, like, other situations where they are. He Davis doesn't know this guy. He just knows someone's yelling at him. And it makes... I, I don't think in that moment he should have had to differentiate between drunk and mentally ill. Like, this is not... He's, he's not, like, a professional psychiatrist or something. Yeah. Or psychologist who would know immediately... How to evaluate the situation. Yeah, and you're reacting in the moment, too. Yeah, he's reacting in the moment. Davis actually testified in his own defense, which is a huge deal. Because normally, lawyers don't let their clients, or they recommend their clients to not testify in their own defense. And this is a murder trial. But he took the stand to explain to the jury what happened and how he felt that day. And that he literally was just trying to push Han off of him. And his version of events, you know, Han grabbed him. And then he pushed him, and that's when he fell on the tracks. And that he says that he was extremely afraid of these threats to kill him. And again, one of the witnesses who was there that day did testify that they heard the threat to kill him. Now, the prosecution, on the other hand, provided two other witnesses who were there that day who claimed that they did not see Han touch Davis. 
And one of those witnesses went even further than that and says that they saw Han lift his hand up. Like he took his hands out of his pocket and lifted his hands up and then saw Davis powerfully strike Han, pushing him onto the tracks. And so that tries to make it sound like Han was just yelling but not touching him. But it's hard to know which witness you can really rely on since there are witnesses that testify on both sides. Yeah, for real. And as it turns out, there was a video of part of the incident because one of the witnesses filmed the part where Davis was actually asking Han to leave him alone and Han kept pursuing him. So that seems to support Davis's claims that he didn't immediately just get violent with this guy. Like he literally was like, leave me alone, leave me alone, go away, leave me alone. And then eventually is like, feels the need to push him away from him. So that, you know, that supports his version of events. At the conclusion of this trial, the jury spent four days deliberating before coming up with their verdict. And in the end, they found Davis not guilty of all charges. And later on, one of the jurors told the New York Times that they thought the prosecution didn't provide enough evidence to show that Davis wasn't acting in self-defense. And during deliberations, they realized that he actually was acting in self-defense. And that's why they acquitted him. Which I think makes sense because... At first, it sounds like a horrifying thing, this man getting pushed in front of a train. But when you really start picking it apart, it is clear that both men made, I feel like made not great decisions that day because I don't think that Davis, I think Davis himself would agree that he, it would have been great if he wouldn't have had to push him onto the train's tracks. I don't think he meant to do that though at all. Yeah. Like I don't think he, I just don't think he realized how close he was to the tracks or how forcefully he was pushing him. But I definitely think that Han was having a, ba- a rough day. I mean, he was drunk. He was being belligerent. It's something that I feel like a lot of people have done and not, and it, you know, it, it worked out okay for them. And sometimes you're just really unlucky. And I feel like he was unlucky that day. Like, I don't think he was a bad person, but I think something really unfortunate happened and he got drunk. He became belligerent and unfortunately was in the wrong place at the wrong time and being right next to a train track. Yeah, agreed. Davis was able to leave court a free man that day, and he told reporters that he planned to eat a nice dinner with his lawyers and then to fly to Paris to be with his family because his family had settled in Paris after being refugees. And the reporters actually pointed out that it's unclear if he even plans to come back to the U.S. with the implication that maybe he won't come back, which I can totally understand because it's why would you want to? Yeah, after that kind of traumatic situation, yeah. Yeah, and he spent four and a half years in county jail awaiting trial for something he was acquitted on. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, so he's essentially an innocent man who spent four and a half years in jail yeah. after being a refugee from a freaking war. Yeah, that is not a speedy trial. No, and it's just really, I don't know, it's really sad. Like, I really feel bad for Kisa Khan's family because, it, I mean, they lost someone who was really important to them and they had to experience the trauma of seeing his final moments on a freaking newspaper which is just unreasonably bad yeah but i totally think that davis was not guilty of any kind of crime here and i think it was unfortunate and i think it's really sad that having been a survivor so much that he went through he was then put through this yeah i agree it's messed up yeah i hope that he was able to be happy afterwards and you know reunite with his family and hopefully have a good life Well, I wanted to tell you that story, though, because originally, just being honest, I had kind of typed it up super fast to, like, give people an idea about what happened whenever I referenced it inside the case that we, the official case of Sunando Sin. But then it got so long because the story is just so, like, 
crazy. It's, it's yeah, like it's just so intricate with like so many twists and turns. I mean, at first you see it because initially, and this is partly like what I think worked against Davis is that because there were a couple of people who were like convinced that he was a depraved maniac, the initial reports were calling him a monster and like like acting like he was just some kind of deranged lunatic monster person who was murdering people in the subway. So there was already hysteria because of the way they were presenting the case. And I'm just going to point out that I personally think that there was some racial motivation in the way they presented the case, because as you may have concluded, since he is from Sierra Leone, Davis is black. And so I think that's partly the reason why they treated him like that in the media and accused him of all these things is because of his race. Yeah. But, and also the fact that he was an immigrant and it's just sad that he like thought he was going to get a safe, nice new life here and be finally able to be happy. And then not only does he have trouble supporting himself with jobs, but then he has all this happen to him and is sent to jail for something that's not even his fault. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, so hopefully he has a nice life and hopefully, uh, the rest of the families and that are involved in here are having good lives and are able to you know be in a better place now because it just is sad that all these people died because I mean obviously with this second case it was just a tragedy yeah literally well that is both of our cases that we had for you today plus the small little mention of the one case and hopefully you found them interesting I know that the subway thing is a little bit different and it's it's like a murder but it's like a different type of murder so. I just thought it would be interesting to cover some of these other types of things that happen and not just like just the standard format, just because there's so many other types of things that are happening in our world that we could be aware of. Because like, as an example, in Paris and London, they have rails on their uh, transit. It's just it's expensive to install them. And so we don't have them. Yeah. And those rails could save lives. Yeah, they could. And so it's things like that are just just that we could be doing better so that people weren't able to be killed in these ways. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like 54 people dying. Most of those people I shouldn't mention in 2012 that died on the tra- on the subway tracks either died by accident or killed themselves. Yeah. But still, that's a kind of a lot. I mean, that's uh, 54 families that lost someone. Yeah. I mean, it it's seems o- worth it. Yeah, it's over one person a week. Yeah. That's a lot of people to be dying mm-hmm. on a train track when you could just have a rail. Yeah. Just putting that out there. Yep. So let us know what you think. I will make an effort to actually put this on the Instagram. I neglected the Instagram again for the last couple of weeks. It's been really busy over here and I'm trying to get like a schedule for myself. In some cases I've actually made like posts for myself in advance, but then still just not had a moment that made sense to post it. So I just need to get better about doing that. Also, if you would like to follow us on social, we do have stuff posted. We're on every social media at Bad Axe Pod, even TikTok. You can visit us there. We have some videos. I recommend the Jack the Ripper video. And I know that I talk about it every single time, but it's, it's a good basi- video. It's a good video. And it's basically like the, sil- the craziest theories that have been put out there. So it's not like attempting to solve the case. It's more like these are f- like five bizarre things that people have said including one person that got a murderer's name from a seance, which is just wild. So that is one of the videos you can watch over there. Also, you can follow us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash badaxpod. We have a lot of bonus episodes, and I try to put really exciting ones over there so that it's just a special treat. Or I don't know if it's a treat, but you know what I mean. I think like, it's a treat. It's, it's delicious. It's something that is, like, way more dramatic 
so that it's like worth it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So go to Patreon if you would like. If you want to contact us, please use our email. It's badaxpod at gmail.com. It's so much easier for me to contact you back there, although I sometimes am neglectful. We have gotten two messages that I have recently received through our website that I am going to respond back to you, but I'm trying to figure out how to respond back to you because apparently I ha- it went to my old email. I don't know if I have mentioned this on the podcast yet, but I had a WordPress account already when I set up our website because I had a different website a long time ago and it's linked to my old email. And unfortunately, I received those messages in my old email. So I'm trying to figure out how to send the messages, like how to respond. I guess I'm going to have to like just move it all to to the Bad Axe Gmail, I guess. So you can definitely contact us there though. And we have our website. Aaron, would you like to tell them about the website? Our website's badaxpod.com. It's a great website. Go check it out. For sure. So thank you for listening. We appreciate you so much, and we will see you soon. Have a great week. Have a great weekend. Be safe, and we will have a new case for you. Bye-bye. Bye.